Someone told me it's a scary time to be alive. A stack of bills and hastily scribbled sticky notes of obligations that I have tumble off my bedside as I accidentally ram my leg of flesh and bone into the dented wooden leg of my desk, which happens to be precariously overpiled. My mind wanders as my eyes scan these fallen papers, and I wonder why have I never learned to open an envelope properly? These mangled remains of formerly proper rectangles of paper add a certain aura of rubbish to this pile on my floor. The print of dollar signs is rarely a welcome sight in a stack of mail, and it brings back my wandering mind, and it brings remembrance of the fact that I'm anticipating a $2,000 credit statement that I haven't received yet. And so my mind starts to deduct that amount from the bank statement that I had just been looking at an hour earlier. The sound of rain suddenly drowns out the empty echo of the silent room, and I grab my phone and hastily swipe through the unlocking motions to bring up the weather app. But I accidentally scroll a little bit too far and catch a blur of the top headlines as I swipe back. And one headline says something about wages being largely stagnant for years, and this quick flash lodges in my head. The weather, I notice, is calling for rain for the next two days, although there is a bright icon of sunlight that stands out three days from the present, and it seems to be some sort of perpetual promise that is always revised the following day. Now, I haven't visited job sites in six years or so, I realize, but that headline that lodged itself in my head keeps coming back to me, and it has me curious, and so I log on to an old account and search through a a meager offering of jobs, and I can't be sure, but it seems like the last time I was on here, people were offering the same jobs many of the same jobs, for better or at least the same starting pay. It's like it's not gone up at all. And maybe that's just me, but that seems to be what I remember. There are three different mugs of different sizes on my desk, and none of them have tea. And so I almost get up to take the largest one downstairs for a fill when I notice a photo in my browser over in the corner, and I bring it up. I have sometimes wondered why every small aircraft seems to be from the 50s, or at the very latest, the 70s or the 80s. I mean, does anyone make new airplanes these days? In fairness, these small old craft from before the dawn of personal computing They are wonderful machines. The craft shown in the picture looks like a classic, maybe a Cessna 185. It's a float plane. Its build and the dents and the discoloration reveal it's been around for a while now. It has quite a history of use. It's tied up to a floating wharf, and 
one can almost feel the slight movement as the gentle waves of the lake would lift and drop the floating planks. I imagine the worn, aged controls and the torn vinyl seats I would find if I climbed in. Across the lake in the photo is a distant shore. The propeller is pointed at the distant tree line and the sloping hills, which stand black against the rising of the sun. Bands of gold and pink make crooked reflections on the dented, riveted sides of the aircraft. If only I could stand on the real wharf and hear the old engine, with nearly a half-century of service already behind it, fire up. To climb in and ride over the hills before the day has fully broken. That thrill is especially palpable in Alaska, where vast swaths of the beauty of the wilderness here are still best discovered in a small float plane. Somewhere, it's a perfect day for flying. But even here, it's a perfect day for something. It could be. And so I take a deep breath and grab the mug to make a quick cup of tea. As I hastily walk out the door, I step on a fallen stack of papers as the wonderful sound of fresh rain watering the green earth still reverberates throughout the room. You are listening to Landfall. Greetings, all you lovers of adventure out there. Welcome to Landfall Radio. I'm Barnabas. I suppose I should begin by addressing my silence over the past few months. I started this show and then I didn't post anything for a few months. And those of you who were encouraging me in this adventure and listening to the first few shows deserve an explanation for what's been going on. I wish I could say that everything has been well. I guess that's what we always want to say. In truth, we go through trying times, and the past few months have been one of those periods in my life. I found out I have an anxiety problem. Some might call it a disorder or even an illness. I don't really care what one word defines it best. It's something that makes life difficult at times. It's something inside something in the brain or in the mind, and yet it can't be reasoned with. It can't be rationalized. It simply exists. It's like freezing rain. It's part of life, and while it makes things difficult, 
It's not an insurmountable difficulty. An anxiety spell is kind of like waking up to find that fresh bread doesn't smell good. Or a rainbow isn't beautiful. I mean, it's a perspective on life that makes, that makes life feel dark. It makes it feel dark overhead and even darker on the horizon. It's like a moment of self-realization inside a nightmare where you realize you're dreaming, but you feel like there won't be any escape, like you won't be able to wake up out of it. With me, something, I don't even know what, something set off a massive anxiety inside me sometime around last fall, and it eventually came out in very physical symptoms of vertigo and nausea and lightheadedness and stomach pain, among other symptoms. Anyway, that's, that's what the doctors whose retirement plans I have now funded tell me happened. I was sick the past several months, and I've wanted and even at times tried really hard to get back here in front of this microphone, but it's just not been able to be. I'm back now because there is so much more to tell, so much more adventure to live, because I thought about giving up on this entirely. Frankly, sitting in front of a microphone and talking on my own, not knowing who is going to tune in if anyone, is somewhat intimidating. And yet I know defeat, and I've been blessed to know victory as well, and I will take the latter any day. The former can be achieved by sitting down and doing nothing. It's easy, but the latter can only come through perseverance and faith. And the thing about anxiety I guess it's often labeled a disorder when it's sort of generalized and doesn't have definable or easily definable roots. And when it becomes so consuming that it really interrupts what a person is trying to do in life, then, then they call it a disorder because all of us have fears. Everyone has anxiety on some level. And perhaps, perhaps a greater anxiety can end up being a blessing in one way because you have to confront it and you have to find a way to live with it. That's the only way you're going to be able to make it. It may paddle along beside you all the way, kind of like a, a kayaking partner, but the, the key is to keep it beside you and not not let it be in front of you or in your way. For many people, the fears that are easily definable, the anxieties that have a specific root, are given a certain measure of control over their lives that is not healthy and destructive ultimately, and they may never realize it if they don't have to confront it. A man or a woman may have no generalized anxiety, they may have no fear of, of flying or of bears or of dark streets at night. But he may harbor a secret terror of public speaking. And 
I know this because I had that fear. And that fear holds you back. There are opportunities that may never be held if one does not confront that fear. It is, it's a fear that's easily buried and never confronted. And one who has it may appear on the outside to be a fearless person because they can hide and suppress that fear and not confront it and thus live a life without ever reaching for the opportunities that overcoming that fear could provide. I had that specific fear, and I have gone to hilarious lengths in the past to avoid a confrontation with that fear. I guess eventually I just had something to say that I couldn't hold in because eventually I did confront it and stood in front of a group of people and delivered a talk after literally getting sick to my stomach before getting up. And of course, finally overcoming that step led to bigger challenges, and by age 19, I was, I was asked to address a mixed group of hundreds of people in a school auditorium. And I remember that experience was surreal. When I got there that day, it was like everything was in slow motion and detached. And I certainly didn't need to run for cardiovascular exercise. When I finally stood up to speak after what seemed like hours and hours of of waiting, I looked out over the sea of faces and I lost my nerve. I felt panic welling up, and I knew that in just a few moments, my voice would falter and a wave of unavoidable nausea would drive me from the stage. And I just looked down and said a silent prayer for strength. Fortunately, I had written out my introduction word for word because I just started reading it with no thought for what I was saying. And in a few moments, I looked up, and it was only people out there. It wasn't an intimidating sea of faces. It was a room of individuals who had come because they wanted to hear something encouraging and hopeful. It was one person who had a need, and another person, and another person, just like me. And the fear died. I was told later that I may have bounced around the stage a little bit too much and maybe spoken a little bit too long. But victory can be messy sometimes. It is not, it is not always clean and perfect. Perfection, or the closest thing we'll ever get to it, only comes with practice. And so you can never expect that overcoming an obstacle will be a perfect execution. It won't be. If you're doing it for the first time, if you're overcoming something that you've never stepped over before, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be pretty. But there is always a part of who we want to be outside of our comfort zone. And in order to get there, you have to step through. Everyone has to face that fact. Whether you have 
regular or disorder level anxieties. The worst thing is to try and bury that and never confront it because if you bury every opportunity to grow and all those things that you could become will never come and life will be stale and that is defeat. And I've tasted defeat as well because defeat is easy. You just sit there and the enemy will take over the fort. You do nothing. It is so easy to be defeated by anxiety. It's sitting there in front of you and you can wait forever hoping that it will just go away when what you always needed to do was to paddle around it and just let it paddle along beside you and be there in the back of your mind if, if, that's, what it, if that's what it wants to do. But don't let it define you. Don't let it hold you back. Don't let it sit there in front of you. Go around it and paddle with it alongside you. My struggle in the end is no different from millions or billions of others. I read once that if you're not growing, you're dying. And that doesn't have any qualifier for whether you struggle with great or small anxieties or stresses. It's a choice for everyone. I think this saying came from the film The Shawshank Redemption. It's a simple choice. Get busy living or get busy dying. And all the complexity of the human experience is difficult to distill into one small catchphrase. But if you were to do or to attempt to do that, this is as good as any. I don't know what living means for you, but a lot of it has to do with paddling forward, not sitting still. And opportunities to do the right thing or to grow may lay outside the comfort zone that you've established for yourself or that you feel like life has established for you. But as you step outside, that bubble gets bigger and there's more, more fun and there's more fulfillment every time you make a jump outside of it. That's living. That's growing. And for me, sitting here in front of this microphone is living. And I am so thankful to be here. Whatever God has gifted you with the ability to do and to enjoy, go get busy living. Well, I definitely blame it on the medication that I was on back then, except that I wasn't on medication back then. I guess I could blame it on kombucha. The local grocery store had suddenly decided to stock about 35 different brands with 10 flavors each. And I don't know about you, but when I walk past something new, and it's got all these different exotic flavors, I mean, you've got organic tropical mango with hints of lemongrass and ginger, and who can resist that? So I had to try nearly every one. And so this was at a time when I was drinking excessive amounts of kombucha, and maybe that was my problem. But I was walking through 
the sporting goods store, stocking up on essentials like fire starter paste and waterproofing spray in anticipation of a mountain goat hunt with my dad and my brother. Now incidentally, waterproofing spray, when applied to leaky tent seams, holds miraculously for approximately 10 minutes in a downpour. And yet the average hiker or hunter generally sleeps a little bit longer than that, they're not always. And so, if you plan on sleeping longer than that when you're out there, you may want to plan on getting soaked, even when you're using this ingenious product. So with waterproofing spray and freeze-dried meals and a new holster for my sidearm in hand, I searched for anything else that I may need. And yes, I remembered I needed pants. I had learned through many years of wearing cotton pants while out hunting that cotton pants are not necessarily the best choice. Unless you enjoy hypothermia because they're great for getting soaked and staying soaked for hours while they gently cool down your core body temperature. And I had always thought that this was part of roughing it, and that one simply had to endure this in order to truly experience the wild. And then someone reminded me after many years of hunting in my ordinary day jeans that you can actually buy pants that are made out of a different material. Materials that actually shed water better, or don't absorb as much water. And soon I was headed to the checkout with a pair of pure polyester pants to try. And just in case, I also had a full rain suit added to my items. And there, right in the clothes section, I saw the hat. I'll never know why on earth earth I walked out of the store with that hat. This hat is a light beige uh, Stetson with a breathable top, a wide brim, and an adjustable neck strap. Now maybe I saw the advertisement that this hat was somehow designed with insect repellent technology and I actually convinced myself in that moment that I might not need to shower in DEET every morning to keep my blood loss to mosquitoes within suitable law schools. But no, surely I knew better than that. So maybe it was just too much kombucha. Whatever it was, I walked out of the store with this hat. Do you know the feeling of how a hat or some other garment may look fine and respectable on someone else, but makes you look like an absolute fool. Now, men's rompers are a notable exception to this rule. Every man looks like a fool in a romper, and deep down, every man knows it. That's not to say that I'm better than every every creature in a romper that calls itself a man for... I walked out of the store with that hat. What's more, when my final packing came around, after stuffing my pack full of 55 pounds of essentials, like a case of Coca-Cola, my secret hunting weapon, I still felt I needed a bit more, and I grabbed that hat. Why in the world? Now in years past, I've hunted in a ball cap in warm months, and 
Perhaps I wanted the benefit of a full wide brim for better sun protection. I don't recall that entering my mind when I was explicably, inexplicably reaching for that hat in the store. But in retrospect, I think I may insert that factor into the story just to make myself look better. Also, I didn't want to have to spend, or having spent $30 on a new hat, to not take it, that would, that would be a waste of money. So take it, I did. Now, I quickly realized that the Stetson Company has come up with a brilliant design for population control in the form of the strap that runs under your chin. Ostensibly, this is for the purpose of keeping the hat in your possession. And I thought at first that that was very reassuring, for many's been the time that I have almost lost a cap while crossing the bay to get to our hunting grounds. You forget that the cap is on your head and you lean out over the side and get a face full of spray and only a catch worthy of the Jedi or Julian Edelman is going to keep your cap from passing out of your possession and into the possessioning of some undeserving porpoise. So with a strap, you have no need to worry about that. But I quickly learned that the strap is evil in design. After all, the lynch mobs of the Old West, they may not have been the most controlled and charitable bunch, but they were no fools. They knew that tying a rope around a man's neck and yanking on it really hard is a really good way to kill a man. And when you throw your head into the spray of a fast-moving boat and the roaring wind whips against your face while you're wearing a hat with a wide brim and a strap below your chin, that is exactly what happens. Now somehow I wrestled the hat from my neck before it severed my bones, not unlike Clint Eastwood's saving of Eli Wallach from the hangman's noose in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. This this was not the only hanging that I was going to endure on this trip. After making landfall, I put my hat back on my head, and we had been placed on a stretch of beach that purported to have a trailhead somewhere nearby. After some searching, we found the marker in an ancient parks log for visitors to record their trips, and it became apparent that no one had maintained this trail in a decade or so, but we headed in anyways. The second way that wide-brim hats with straps serve to thin the herd has to do with overgrowth. In Alaska, that would be alders. And while alders make the going slow and wear the patience of even the most relaxed person who finds themselves tangled up or slapped sharply in the face with every two steps, I have to admit that they actually saved me from harm one time. It, uh, I, I was crawling up a, a rock face one day, and it had just been raining, and so the, the rock face was soaked, and I lost my footing and fell right over the, uh, the edge and fell tumbled into the loving embrace of an alder thicket. Now, it took me some time to disentangle myself and get down, but for one moment I was suspended between the earth and the sky, and I remember being so thankful for the presence of the mostly wretched plants. Now this hat of mine, 
this beautiful, wonderful hat. Corrected this one saving attribute of the alders. I was fighting through a thicket, and I stumbled. That's not unusual, I'm used to that. And I have fallen down enough in alder thickets that I can usually do it in such manner that I avoid serious harm. I was crawling down through an alder thicket one time with over a hundred pounds on my back, and I tripped and stumbled and fell forward, plunged about ten feet down a hill, and when I finally dug myself out of the impact crater that I made, I was no worse for wear. When I fell in the alder thicket with this hat on, it seized the opportunity to halt my graceful descent to earth by becoming snagged in the, ve in the vegetation. Now normally with a cap, this would be no problem. It would remain about six feet high in the bushes while I found my face mashed into a pile of moose droppings. Ah, uh, but this hat has a strap below your chin. And you can imagine what wonders this does for your health when the hat gets snagged as 235 pounds of human flesh and packed items give way beneath it. It very neatly hangs you on the spot. Now the uninitiated out there may counter that in such instances you might very well lose the hat if it were not for the strap. And to that, I would say that it would have been a merciful intervention to have lost the hat. But no, after surviving the second hanging of the trip, the hat was very much on me. And the next strap reminded me every few steps now that it was very much there as it rubbed against my mm, rather sore neck. Even though we lost the trail that day and had to retrace our steps, I didn't lose the hat. Nor would I have retraced my steps for it if I had. Okay, I actually probably would have. Because, well, I don't know. Kombucha or something. When we finally found a small trail going up into the mountains, we pitched a camp near the top. The following morning, I loaded up my guns, set the hat on my head, and headed over the top. The top was not quite high enough on this particular mountain to be barren or snow-covered. When I got over the top, I found a massive meadow of short grass and flowers. Now the denizens of the meadow had mixed reactions to me, or possibly mixed reactions to my hat, because of the strangeness of the reactions. Upon first coming over the top, I came face to face with a coyote who immediately leaped backwards and fell all over himself trying to get away, trying to escape as if for dear life. I, I glanced up and just noticed his rear end running away from me at top speed, and I ran over the ridge hoping to get another look at him. But all I saw was about a mile and a half of meadow spread out in front of me, and I wondered how... How in the world did the coyote manage to cover all that distance in that short amount of time and get away? I could only deduce that the sight of the hat coming over the hill, for that is practically all that he would have seen, gave him more of a fright than, 
than the arrival of the Grim Reaper himself and caused him to attain super canine speeds. And though we camped in that meadow for several days, we never saw him again. He may be swimming across the Panama Canal by now. The other occupants of the mountaintop were a flock of ptarmigan. I spotted them at a distance and walked right up to them, and they paid me little more heed than my flock of chickens would. My experience with birds of this kind is generally fear, though I once was attacked by a spruce grouse when I stumbled upon her babies. But never before had I ever encountered uh, such a docile tolerance to my presence, and I could only deduce that perhaps they did not recognize me to be a human in that hat. Had the hat possessed any insect-repellent properties in the slightest. I may have even worn it to sleep, pulling it over my face like a cowboy hat to ward off the inevitable five or ten mosquitoes that managed to sneak into the tent every night and lay low until you fall asleep. But it possessed no such qualities. And the only thing that held my blood loss to a sustainable level was the gentle breeze on the top of the mountain, and of course, showers of deet. When I returned home from the successful hunt, the hat was quite a sight. Scuffed and twisted, covered in multicolored stains, and the metal grommets through which the strap, horrible strap, was run, um, they were starting to rust slightly, it, it frankly looked like some buffoon had actually worn it every waking moment for four days. I brushed it off, but didn't wash it, and hung it up in my closet and tried to forget about it. And here is where the power of the hat came out. Over the next few months, it regained its shape, and the stains that it was covered with mostly faded away, and it turned back into this, this light beige color that it had uh, originally been when I purchased it, but certainly had not been when I hung it up in the closet. For some bizarre reason, I have now dubbed it my official mountain hunting hat. I will forthwith play a dangerous game with this hat, attempting to thwart its attempts to hang me, even as it ruins any sense of style in my photos. For after all, this hat has rejuvenating powers. And I did grow attached to it for some inexplicable reason. I did make one modification to the hat. Inside, uh, inside the liner, there was this label whereon some lying liar had printed a proclamation that the hat was made with powerful insect repellent technology. Now, since I had already disproven this in the field, I, I figured I'd put something at least a little more truthful on there. And so I inked out the word insect and replaced it with the word coyote. That's field testing. And besides, I don't want this, this hat that I am now bound to, and it to me, to go around forever with the horrible lie that sucked me into buying it in the first place. Unless I really had drank too much kombucha that day.
It's midsummer for sure, from sea to shining sea. And that makes many of us want to jump in the sea. Not only is it stifling hot in Phoenix, it has also been pretty stinking hot here in coastal Alaska. I was quite sick for much of the spring and developed a good case of couch muscles. Now I'm in a desperate race to build back up because I need to climb at least two or three mountains this fall. So in pursuit of this goal, I dusted off my bicycle and have been choosing challenging routes to ride. When biking in Alaska, you can often count on staying cool, if you can go fast enough. The rushing air feels cool against your sweaty face, and it provides an incentive for keeping a good pace. When you're toiling up a hill, for example, you get so hot, but you just have to go faster to cool down because... Otherwise, if you stand still, then all that sweat's just going to come out and the sun beating down on you is going to make you fall over of heat stroke. And those of you who bike down in Florida or Arizona, forgive me, I'm a wimp. The, the rushing air that feels so good against your face can also tell you when it's really, really hot out because if that rushing air fails to feel cool and actually starts to feel hot against your face, you know it's really hot out there, like 80 degrees. And again, those of you in Arizona or similar places, that's the way we think around here. Just go with it. I encountered this a few days ago. This, this heat against my face, and began wondering why I had chosen to ride my bike 25 miles that day over hilly terrain instead of jumping into the river. When cruising along at considerable speeds, I try to keep my mouth shut, but that's never... it never works out, and it's not like I'm jabbering to myself on my bicycle or anything. It's just that when it gets hot enough and my heart rate is high enough, it's, it's like grabbing a glass of lemonade when you're so thirsty you're about to drink radiator fluid, and you don't just take tiny little sips. If there's a funnel laying around, you grab that funnel, jam it down your throat, and, and well, maybe you don't go that far, but you know, you know the feeling I mean. So when you're biking, and your heart rate's really high, and it's really hot out there, you can't just suck in tiny breaths through your nose. You have to <gasps> and when you do that, you get a whole truckload of bugs in your mouth. I guess that's protein and nutrients straight from nature. As long as you can manage to swallow them properly instead of breathing seven ounces of pure bug into your lungs with every breath. Unfortunately, I have not mastered that art. And so... I don't know if the pain in my lungs after I'm done riding is due to the exercise. That would be healthy pain, and I'm okay with that. Or if it's my lungs sending a message that, you know, processing bugs is a job meant for the stomach, not for the lungs. So what's going on here? Still, the way I see it, my lungs, they've had it pretty good so far because I've inhaled countless tiny bugs and maybe even a few mosquitoes or small flies 
but it's not like I've ever gulped in a hornet or a small bird or something like that. I've had a few close calls, but it just hasn't happened yet, thankfully. In the spirit of preventative health care instead of reactionary health care, maybe I should invest in some sort of a mouth screen. I did also learn from my bike rides that I have a little bit too much arm hair. Now, I'm not one to take a razor to it or anything, because that would be profoundly unalaskan and weird. But earlier in the year, I was biking around with a light jacket because it was cooler and mostly rainy weather at the time. But lately, in this heat that we've been having, I've been biking with exposed arms. And this has presented a problem that I didn't really anticipate in the past. All those bugs hovering around me trying to get sucked into my mouth as I inhale with more power than any vacuum cleaner on David Oreck's line, these bugs, they sometimes miss, and they end up hitting my arms. And there they become entangled in that hair and can't get out. It's kind of like a blue whale swimming along, capturing tons of krill in its baleen. And by the time... I reach a bottom of a stretch of hill, my arms are crawling with these little pests. And sometimes, since they're caught anyway and not doing anything in particular, they realize that it's a perfect time to bite me. Well, despite the bugs and the heat and the bugs, these bike rides are important. They may mean the difference between me reaching the tops of the mountains in the fall or giving up halfway and duct-taping myself into a ball to roll gently back to the bottom. Perseverance is a virtue in the end. And with that, I bid you all farewell for the week. I hope your summer is going well, and wherever you may be, I hope that you're having adventures and fun times in the heat. And if you live next to the ocean, and it's not too cold and there aren't sharks around, go and jump in. I hope that you will return for the next chapter of imaginative, challenging, and encouraging radio ventures. And until next time, God bless all of you, and thank you for listening.